The reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 12, page 708. Thank you. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 12. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading can be found in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. That is page 994. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. At that time... The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, or our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins, who were ready, went with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. A prayer as we stand. But this I know, all flesh will see his glory. Heavenly Father, please teach us about that moment now when Christ will one day return for your name's sake. Amen. Please do be seated. And uh, if you've lost your place in your Bible, do return, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. It's page 994. 
in the church Bibles. You may know that uh, catchy song in the uh, Disney film and the theatre hit, uh, The Lion King. Do you know that song, The Circle of Life? Uh, I had a friend at university who used to play it top volume in his car when we went shopping, and it was very embarrassing. And when Kate and I went to go and see the musical, she had to stop me singing along, just the gentle tap on my thigh. I knew what that meant. It is a great song but it has terrible theology. If you were going to choose a shape to describe the shape of world history, what shape would you choose? Would it be a circle, uh, the circle of life, a loop, history repeating itself, never actually moving in any permanent direction, history with no end, no purpose? Or would it be a line Uh, History which is going somewhere, which has an end, a terminus, a purpose to which it is working. Can I say, if you're a Christian here this morning, the correct answer is a line. Enjoy the song, but just, we could sing the line of life. And this morning we're catching a glimpse of when for all of us, as we say, we will come to the end of the line. And what lies at the end of the line is not an event. It is not nuclear holocaust. Uh, It's not ecological disaster. It's not our sun burning itself out. At the end of the line, there's a person. And uh, in this passage here in verse 5 and verse 10, he's got a name. He's called the bridegroom. He's called Jesus Christ. Uh, Welcome to the third sermon in this little three-part series, Christ Has Died. We looked at that two weeks ago, Uh, Christ is risen uh, last week, and then today Christ will come again. Uh, I sincerely hope he will today, but certainly that's our theme. Uh, If you're a a note-taker, there are my headings on the the back of the notice sheet, and the first is this, Christ's return and the long wait, and the long wait. Chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 1, let me read it. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, that is, bridesmaids, who took their lamps. Uh, They would have been large dome-shaped torches fueled by oil-soaked rags. And they took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, Jewish weddings back in the day happened quite differently from ours, as you may have gathered from this reading Uh, Firstly, it was all about the bridegroom rather than the bride. We just have to get over that, culturally speaking. But secondly, let me tell you what happened and when. The groom and the ushers would go, first of all, to the bride's house for an intimate, private ceremony. That is where the wedding promises and vows would be made. And there they would make those promises with the nearest and dearest, and uh, they'd have a bit of a family party. And after that, the whole bridal party would traipse through the streets of the village or the town or the city back to the groom's house where their main event would happen, uh, where the wedding organizers had set it all up and the big crowds were waiting. And uh, friends and bridesmaids and well-wishers and hangers-on would all wait in the streets of the village and the town waiting for the bridal party to pass. 
Uh, no doubt they'd throw some of their confetti and they'd shout and cheer, and they'd, they'd, they'd accompany the bridal party into the groom's house for the, for, the, for the main event, for the banquet feast. The thing is, who knows how long the bridegroom will be at the bride's house for the private ceremony? How long will that be? Anyone's guess, really. Uh, it could be a very quick ceremony, you know, down a glass of champagne and make some promises and they're off. Or it could be a slightly more rambling affair. You know, if Uncle Frederick uh, decides to say a few words, then it really could be quite a long time indeed. It is the bridegroom prerogative to come when he wants to come. After all, it is his wedding day. And as it happens, on this occasion, he's taken his time. Who knows why? Uncle Frederick said more than a few words. Verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. Indeed, verse 6, it is only as the clock strikes midnight that the cry goes out, here's the bridegroom. You know, finally, come out to meet him. This is Christ's return and the long wait. Our passage here is nestled in a larger section, all containing teaching on Jesus' return, and it stretches from Matthew chapter 24 through to Matthew chapter 25. If you're interested in St. Michael's Chester Square homework, then you could read that uh, this next week. But each of the five parables Jesus uses have a slightly different take on Jesus's absence now and his return to come. Uh, They warn against two types of mistake that you and I can make. The first mistake is this. It is not to be ready at any time because Jesus' return will be sudden. So can I ask you, are you ready at any time for his return? His return will be sudden. But the second mistake here in our passage is rather different in its tenor. This mistake is not to be ready for a long time, for a long wait. And the two mistakes are quite different. Some of us will be more prone to one, some of us more prone to the other. Sometimes keen Christians ask one another, are you living each day as if Christ could come tomorrow? Are you living each day as if it's your last? Now, in many ways, it's a good question. Christ could come tomorrow. His return will be sudden. Are you ready at any time? But it is not the only question to ask, as this passage reminds us. Because if I was to live today as if Christ were to come tomorrow, I wouldn't bother doing all sorts of things which I really should do. I wouldn't bother writing my talk for the ark tomorrow. I wouldn't bother seeing to try and fix the leak in the roof of our flat. I wouldn't do the laundry at home. I just wouldn't. If Christ was going to come tomorrow, who cares about that? It would all be about urgent, manic evangelism, telling others about the Lord Jesus, honestly. But here, we find the need to balance the suddenness of Christ's return with the expectation that it will be a long wait before he comes back. That's the point of this parable. And so quite obviously, we need to make sure that our Christian discipleship is sustainable in the long term. It's helpful that they're running the London Marathon right now as I speak. The Christian life is a marathon effort. Jesus' delay will be long, we're told here. 
Uh, we need to get in place patterns of daily devotions and family prayers around the breakfast table, church attendance, serving on rotors at church, financial giving, which could conceivably last a very long time. I ran the marathon last year, and you don't sprint the first mile. You've got to be into sustainable running. And so we need to be into sustainable Christian discipleship. So can I ask you, are you in it for the long haul? Can you keep this pace going? Uh, That's the same question we need to ask as a church. Are our church strategies sustainable in the long term? Uh, Christ could come tomorrow, but it may be a long wait. We need to be training up the next generation of Christian leaders and Bible teachers and church office managers and children's workers because it might be a very long wait. Are we in it for the long haul as St. Michael's Chester Square? That is what catches out the foolish bridesmaids here in this passage, isn't it? That's why they ran out of oil for their lamps. It wasn't that the bridegroom came suddenly. It was that he took his time. And he only came when the clock struck midnight. Now, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. But however long the wait will be, he will certainly come. And when he comes, let me tell you, second heading, there will be a party. This is Christ's return and the wedding banquet. Verse 10, the bridegroom arrived and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. Now, depending on the wealth of the bridegroom's family, this main event at the groom's place lasted perhaps minimal a day, but maximal a week. Do you remember that occasion in John chapter 2 where there's a wedding and it's very embarrassing because the host runs out of wine? And I've often wondered to myself, is that just terrible planning? I've never myself run out of wine at a party I've hosted. But no, it's quite understandable if the party lasts a week. (laughs) Who knows how much Uncle Frederick will continue to drink for a whole week. So so this this is the main event. If you get shut out from this, you're missing out on a week's worth of party. But I wonder, do you think of heaven as being like a wedding banquet? It's a bit like here, a hyperlink to a website. And as it's just mentioned, this wedding banquet in passing, we double-click through to a much bigger Bible theme, which goes through as a thread through the Old and the New Testament the theme of a wedding banquet. We had it read in that wonderful reading from Isaiah chapter 25, our first reading. Have you heard that one before? It's one of the best Old Testament pieces talking about the wedding banquet in heaven. Let me just reread a little bit of it. No need to turn back to it. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and oh, did I mention the finest of wines? It's a picture of of the very best things in life. That's what heaven is, is going to be like. But it's more than that. On this mountain, he will destroy, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. It'll be the best things in life, untouched by the worst things in life. There, there'll be no place for death or depression or decay, as we thought about last week. You know, if we went out into the street, let's say Elizabeth Street, just um, the other side of the church building here, and if we asked people whether they were interested in this, whether they were interested in paradise, what do you think they would say? 
I, I think they would look askance at us to start with as if it was too obvious a question to bother asking. Of course I am. I'm a human being. It's, it's paradise. Of course I'm interested in that. But then if we ask that very same person whether they were interested in knowing God, well, the tone may change, mightn't it? There would be a darting away of the eyes, a slight British awkwardness, maybe an offense. God? No, no, I'm interested in paradise. But why the love of paradise and not the love of God? See, we've made a fundamental error, haven't we? In our materialist, secular society, we tend to think of God and paradise as being diametrically opposed from one another. Let me read out some words to you. Church, faith, ethics, kindness, grace, mercy, prayer, devotion. Most people would connect those things with God, but many people would say those things are boring, not paradise. Let me read out some more words. Beaches, sex, music, laughter, Merlot, Wagyu steak, sunshine, paradise. People want to sign up for that. Nothing to do with God, is it? But we forget that God is the creator of both lists. Indeed, if something is good, it comes from God by definition. If any a part of something is good, that part comes from God. You know, we often talk about the goodness of God, don't we? What about the godness of good? If something is good, it comes from God. There can be no paradise without God. Indeed, the more intimately involved God is with something, the more like paradise it becomes. That is why it is a blessing to become a Christian, to begin to know him intimately. And the reason heaven will be paradise on the last day is because he will be there. Are you interested in paradise? Well, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is as integral to paradise as a bridegroom is to a wedding party. Friends, waiting is hard. Uh, The longer we've been Christians, the longer we've been waiting for this particular day and the wedding banquet. Some of us, without putting too fine a point on it, have been waiting rather a long time. Waiting is hard. But can I say there will be no one in the banquet of heaven who will be muttering to his or her neighbor around the table saying, this wasn't worth the wait. It will be an amazing wedding banquet feast. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day nor the hour. And so it is with, honestly, with regret, but necessity, we come to our final heading, Christ's return and the shut door. Let me read out verses 6 to 12 and and listen in. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, oh, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, why don't you go to those who sell oil, Tesco's down the road, and just buy some for yourselves? But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, 
I tell you the truth, I do not know you. And here is the sting in the tale, and we must heed it. The foolish bridesmaids simply were not prepared. They didn't have oil for their lamps. Now, the oil here doesn't have any special allegorical meaning. It is simply a way of speaking about unreadiness or lack of preparedness. They weren't ready for the long wait. Friends, this parable from the lips of the most loving man who ever lived tells us quite clearly the banquet will not be for everyone because many people will not be prepared for the bridegroom's return. And I want to look at two aspects of this, the when and the who, as I finish up. Firstly, the when. There will come a point after which it will be too late for us to get ready for Jesus' return. End of verse 10, and the door was shut. Uh, That is chillingly final. You know, a lot of people are convinced by the truth of Christianity, I find. But many people delay and they procrastinate making a decision for Christ. And the reasons given are many and varied. You know, life's so busy, the weekend plans, the children's education, the holiday needs to be booked, elderly relatives need to be looked after, and so on and so forth. There are other things on the agenda. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's that people worry Jesus is going to actually ruin their own lives. And so they plan a deathbed conversion. I'm not sure that can be planned. But in the language of this passage, that is foolishness. Have a look back at the parable and ask yourself this question. When was that point of no return for these foolish bridesmaids? When was it? If you had to pinpoint a verse after which it was too late for them, which verse would you pinpoint? Was it in verses 11 to 12 where the final verdict was given, I do not know you? No, that was just the culmination of events. Was it in verse 10 when they headed to Tesco to buy the oil and missed the groom? No, that was a consequence of a decision they made earlier. Was it in verse 9 when help was refused them? No, no, no. It was all consequence of a little mundane decision they made as they left the house that morning. It was verse 3, wasn't it, that proved absolutely final for them when they didn't pack oil for their lamp when they left home. And no doubt it was a seemingly mundane moment. They left the house, keys, wallet, oil, forgot the oil. Such an easy thing to forget. Not an obviously significant eternal moment for them, but it led to the only door that mattered being shut in their faces. And so it will be for some today. Our final opportunity to get ready for Christ's return comes earlier than we imagine, as in this passage, and seems such a mundane moment we might miss it, as in this passage. It will not be marked in our diary or our iPhone calendar. It's not accompanied by thunder or lightning or by a lotto finger from the sky saying, this is it. 
No, like these bridesmaids, our moment of no return for eternity seems utterly mundane, so easy to miss. We're sitting there listening to the notices in church again, the same slides again. Come to Alpha, starting on this date, we switch off. It's the same slide. I've heard it many times. We don't come. Uh, another invitation to make a public commitment to Christ in a sermon, and honestly, we're moved in that moment. We feel we should, but the moment you know the organ starts playing at the end and we have a cup of tea, it fades. Or there's some tragedy on our screens or in our lives, makes us ask the eternal questions, but quickly it's subsumed into the busyness of life. And before we know it, the key moment has passed. Wallet, keys, oil. And we've left the house for the groom's wedding with no oil in our lamp. We've left the house for judgment day with no faith in Christ to our name. And who knows, that could be our last moment to decide. That's what this parable is saying. We could die unexpectedly, people do, or the bank suddenly relocates us to somewhere away from a good church, or our parents become ill and we have to look after them on Sundays, no longer here to hear. Friends, I'm not scaremongering. I'm just teaching the parable that's in front of me that the most loving man who ever lived first taught. And so before we know it, the day of verse 11 hastens on, Sir, sir, open the door for me. I never knew you. That's the when, but what about the who? Now, of course, this is where it gets difficult. There are ten bridesmaids in the parable. And it is striking that all ten have so much in common with one another, isn't it? They all know there is to be a wedding. They all know they need lamps to be prepared. After all, the foolish ones brought the lamps, if not the oil. Indeed, on some level, they all want to be at the wedding banquet. After all, why would they wait in the streets until midnight if they didn't? The only difference between the foolish ones and the wise ones is in their readiness for a long wait. That is the only difference. Friends, in the terms of this parable, the foolish person does not look obviously foolish from the outside or at the beginning. He or she would know Christ is coming back, would know that heaven is real. He or she would want to go there. I don't doubt that he or she would be amongst us here regularly at St. Michael's on a Sunday morning. They would understand a lot about the Christian faith and yet... Tragically, they wouldn't know Jesus. Verse 12, I don't know you. I think in a word, the foolish bridesmaid's problem is complacency. That's my conclusion from my preparation. They're just so used to other people bailing them out. They um, think that the other Christians will bail them out on the last day when Jesus returns. Did you notice that? Oh, could we have some of your oil, please? But verse 9 they find that of all the things that can be borrowed and lent, faith and the obedience of faith which accompanies it cannot be borrowed. It has to be owned by yourself. And so on this day, every one of us will stand as an individual before the Lord Jesus Christ with no one else to lend us what we might need. So husbands... Stand alone without wives on that day. Children stand alone without parents on that day. And in that moment, we will need to be able to point to a vital faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I trust you. I trusted you. 
Look at the way I lived. It'll have to belong to us. And finally, as I close, maybe these foolish bridesmaids got so used to talking themselves out of difficult situations. Maybe they were very good at persuading people of saying, oh, please, just give me a second chance. Maybe they were so used to having a soft, cuddly roll over Jesus that they thought he would just acquiesce on that last day. But verse 12, he isn't and he won't. I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Oh, please. And the door shuts. Complacency. It kills the Christian faith. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, so if you think you are standing, take heed that you don't fall. That is a verse for me this week. So friends, Christ has died, and there he demonstrated love for us like no other love ever seen. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to stand where you're standing, he said, took the punishment I deserved. He's done all the work necessary for me to be found full of faith on that last day. Wonderful news. Christ is risen. And in that act, he proved that the gospel is a load-bearing wall. It can survive the weight of our eternity being put onto it. We can trust that. And finally, Christ will come again after a long wait. The end of the line. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are hard eternal truths. And Lord, we just pray that we would take them to heart. I pray for myself as I pray for the others here that there be no fools amongst us in the language of Matthew 25. I pray that we would listen and we would bring oil with us. We would bring faith with us for that last day for your name's sake. Amen.